At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to Up to Date Special Coverage Coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. Today we begin with a conversation with Missouri Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who's been busy answering questions about when those stimulus checks will arrive. Later, a visit with area police about how they're working their way through a pandemic. And we'll check in with David Vondrele of the Washington Post, who lives here in the Kansas City area. He just endured his own bout with COVID-19. But first today, President Trump continues to promote the drug hydroxychloroquine as a possible treatment for COVID-19, despite warnings from his top health officials. The resulting demand for the drug is now affecting those who are prescribed it for their own disease. Here to tell about that impact is Dr. L. Kim. He's director of the Washington University Lupus Clinic in St. Louis. Doctor, thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve, and good morning. What diseases is hydroxychloroquine approved to treat, doctor? So hydroxychloroquine is FDA approved to treat systemic lupus erythematosus, which is an autoimmune disease that can affect numerous organs of the body. But it's also used uh, in other autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome. So it has broad applicability. Uh, The use in lupus, though, is critical. It's the cornerstone of our treatment therapies because it's the only drug that has been known to improve survival in lupus. Hmm. Do we know if it's effective against COVID-19? So the data is weak largely because of methodologic flaws in the studies that have been published. So uh, some French studies and Chinese studies have suggested uh, uh, that it may be effective to treat COVID-19, but uh, the, the best interpretation of those data is that it should be further studied. Um, to interpret it anymore would likely be an overinterpretation. Um, it's used to prevent COVID-19. There's absolutely no data at this point. Hmm. What does the president's recommendation of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 mean for patients like yours? So many of our patients have been having trouble getting hydroxychloroquine largely because of what I believe is inappropriate um, use uh, and prescriptions from providers to patients to prevent COVID-19. So we have um, done a very informal survey yesterday of 127 patients. Um, right now, uh, it looks like that the pharmacies that they use, about a third of them don't have uh, Plaquenil anymore or hydroxychloroquine. Hmm. Twelve of the uh, 127 are now without hydroxychloroquine, and they all feel like they're flaring right now. Hmm. What's your reaction when you hear the president continue to promote this drug for COVID-19? You know, so I think, you know, the issue here is that hope and rigor um, should work with one another. Hope gives us innovation and ideas, but rigor allows us to test it. Right now, what's going on is that it's all hope and uh, the rigor is being ignored. So not only are patients taking hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 at risk of side effects, but the patients who need hydroxychloroquine for proven benefit are also suffering. Hmm. That's Dr. L. Quinn. He's director of the Washington University Lupus Clinic over in St. Louis. Dr. Sure, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on.
Missouri Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler is getting all manner of questions these days about the impact of the coronavirus on her fourth district, which reaches into the Kansas City area. One is when taxpayers can expect to receive a stimulus check. Another concerns whether Congress will take up a fourth aid package in the wake of the pandemic. Still others are focused on help for small businesses. But Congresswoman joins us now. Congresswoman, so nice to have you back. Welcome. Well, thank you, Steve. Good to be here. How many times a day, just out of curiosity here, is your office getting questions about when those stimulus checks are going to arrive? I don't know the exact number, but certainly people are very interested in that and uh, looking forward to receiving those. And I believe that they're going to be here within a couple of weeks. So that'll be a welcome addition of uh, finances for a lot of our families. I'm wondering, just in general, how is your district faring in the wake of this outbreak, Congresswoman? I mean, what are you picking up from your constituents? Well, certainly we have been in contact with a lot of our hospitals, every one of them actually uh, checking on them to make sure that they have the PPEs, that they need the personal protective equipment, uh, making sure that uh, they are able to take care of any patients. And certainly it varies um, in the district. We have 24 counties. As you say, our district starts just south of Kansas City in Cass County. Belton and Raymore um, goes uh, over with uh, Warrensburg and then east and south. Um, so there are areas where people are uh, having COVID-19 uh, and hospitals are dealing with that. Other areas haven't been hit uh, so strongly yet. So it kind of varies by the district. Um, but now that people are uh, at home, you know, that's impacting a lot of our businesses uh, with the stay-at-home um, order. And I was on the call yesterday with a lot of our manufacturers in the south part of our district. Uh, the essential ones are able to keep running, which is good. Others have had to shut down. Of course, that means that people are at home. And uh, so I've been on the phone a lot, as had my staff, with businesses in our area who are applying for the Paycheck Protection Program which is a wonderful program, part of the $2 trillion stimulus package that we passed a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. that will allow them to continue to pay their employees for eight weeks and uh, keep them on the payroll so that when we get over this in uh, hopefully just a couple of months, uh, then people will be ready to just come right back to work and keep going. So uh, we're, we are uh, working on this from multiple fronts, from individuals who want their checks to hospitals, healthcare workers to businesses and as well as the banks. We're in contact with every Mm -hmm. bank in my district, uh, helping them get set up for this program. Representative, let me go back to your comments on hospitals and whether they have the equipment they need. Do the hospitals in your district have enough PPEs and ventilators and masks? It depends on the particular hospital and their needs, but there is uh, still, you know, this nationwide shortage, and I think everyone would like to have more. Uh, and so I know the, the state and the governor are working very uh, diligently to try to make sure that everyone has uh, the, at least a minimum amount that they need, and they're very aggressively buying more and we are uh, FEMA is sending out from the national strategic stockpile additional uh, supplies as well so I've been on multiple calls as well with FEMA administrators as well as the governor's office and the Department of Health and Human Services there in Jeff City um, advocating for various uh, entities in my district and they're doing the best job that they can but uh, 
Uh, I think it's better than it was a couple of weeks ago, but there are still needs. How many positive cases of COVID-19 are in Missouri's 4th District right now? Do you have a rough sense? I don't, but I don't think it is that many uh, total, but I don't have the latest numbers. You know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is pushing ahead on her plans to, to develop another relief package here. She's focusing on more direct payments to Americans and increased unemployment benefits. I'm wondering what your initial read of this idea is, Congresswoman. Is there a need for a fourth package at this point? I think that's yet to be seen. We're still rolling out and implementing this bill, the $2 trillion package. It just passed two weeks ago. And I think we should wait and see how this goes, as well as uh, how the coronavirus develops or how it is stopped. There's therapeutics that are brought on board that are able to help. Um, I think we should just you know, be looking at that first and foremost, because in this package, not only do we have the Paycheck Protection Program, which will basically allow every small business under 500 uh, employees to continue to keep their people on the payroll uh, for eight weeks. But then we have a very robust unemployment program, which is going to provide a lot of help uh, for individuals who have lost their jobs. And just starting a week ago today, uh, started the two-week sick leave provision, paid sick leave, that individuals can get paid for staying home if they are sick themselves or have symptoms or a family member is sick or if their child is home from school and they have to care for the child. And then once that is uh, that two-week period is over, then uh, the other package we pass will pay for an additional family medical leave for an additional 10 weeks, pay them to, to take care of a child uh, at home if they have to stay home because the school is out. And so there's a lot of provisions already that are being implemented, just now rolled out. And uh, so let's see how those go, you know, before we start talking about um, additional programs out there. I'm wondering, you mentioned the fate of uh, small businesses, and I'm thinking that in your district, particularly, Congresswoman, the margins for some of these uh, small businesses that they operate on are probably pretty small. Are you getting reports of businesses closing, shutting down? What what are you hearing from from your people? Uh, Not so much, but there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of interest, obviously, in the Paycheck Protection Program and the other loan programs through the SBA that we have provided. You know, we have... uh, done through Congress a lot to try to help businesses stay viable uh, during this time. And so there is help out there. I would, you know, encourage any business to to not uh, consider shutting their doors and to explore all the very generous programs available to them that will help them stay going. Um, Because we had a very uh, thriving economy before coronavirus, and we want to get back there as quick as possible. And I think we will. Um, you know, we had record unemployment, wages were rising, we had manufacturing coming back, incomes looking good, and uh, and then this virus hit. But I think we can go back fairly quickly once this uh, is over. And uh, so we're, we have programs in place to help businesses keep going in the meantime. Okay, that's Missouri Congressman Vicki Hartzler. Uh, Congresswoman, we sure appreciate your time today, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Sounds great. Thank you. Have a good day. You too.
Missouri and Kansas both have stay-at-home orders and safe distancing is all the rage as the country deals with the coronavirus outbreak. But to what extent are police enforcing stay-at-home orders these days? And what's their role when it comes to enforcing social distancing? Let's find out. With us, uh, Overland Park Police Chief Frank Donchez. Chief, nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And Sergeant Jake Bakina is also with us. Uh, he's a chief spokesman for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Sergeant, welcome back. Good to have you, too. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here with you. Well, let's begin with the stay-at-home orders that are now in place in both states. Uh, chief, is the Overland Park Police Department throwing people in jail for violating stay-at-home orders? <laughs> no, we, we are not. You know, I think that we're in a education mode and i think that's the best mode to be in we've printed up flyers that explain the serious nature of this uh this virus and what people can do to protect themselves we have that flyer printed one side is in english the other side is in spanish what we're doing is trying to educate people when we find them uh in public spaces and maybe not doing the social distancing we are uh, handing out those flyers as an educational component. How's that working, Chief? Are people responding to it? I think I think it's going pretty well. I think for the vast majority of people are are agreeing to stay at home and to social distance. I know we've had some calls about maybe some tennis courts, uh, more so in the neighborhood association tennis courts. But for the most part, I think that people are, are abiding by that. If somebody is playing uh, tennis, would your officer stop and hand out a flyer? Not if we weren't called on it. And again, I think you could play social. I think you could play tennis and social distance. I'm not so sure that you can play basketball and social distance. <laughs> Sergeant Bakina, how about the Kansas City Police Department? Have you arrested anybody for a stay-at-home order violation? No, we're we're kind of in the same boat as Overland Park, and I'll use a different E word, and it's uh, encouragement. In addition to education, we're also encouraging you know people to follow the regulations that are in place. We're doing things like as officers are out on their regular patrols, we are suggesting that they drive through the local parks that are in their area, and um, you know just kind of pass through and see if there's anybody there, and um, make contact. You know, kind of just give a little wave, a little nod, just hey, you know, we see you if they're there and they're not observing the social distancing. Um, I passed by uh, Loose Park yesterday uh, as an example, and I um, uh, saw many people there that were observing social distancing. It's a large park, but hmm. they were all, you know, kind of following the rules. You know, Sergeant, uh, just my own experience, you know, sometimes I bike to work uh, along Ward Parkway, come down along Brush Creek to get to the station here or even driving. I'm, I'm astonished at rush hour traffic in Kansas City, both morning and evening. It's not 10 percent of what it used to be. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, the 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 the. Uh, Roads are definitely much less uh, traveled, for sure. And and 10% might not even be um, an accurate representation. Right. Uh, Chief, over in Overland Park, are you seeing something similar? Uh, We are, yes. Are are you surprised by that? No, not at all. Because, what, people are getting the message, Chief? I I think the message is, is resonating, yes. Yeah. Do your departments have the personal protective equipment that you need? Chief, I'll begin with you. We do. We do. We know we have the mask, we have gloves, and I think that the officers are taking this seriously and uh, we've, we've provided that PPE to them and they're, you know, they're doing what they can 
to protect themselves, but also obviously protect the public. Mm-hmm. How about you, Sergeant Bakina? Yes, we do. Uh, we have equipped our officers uh, all out in patrol that have contact with the public. We've received an outpouring of support and donations over the last week, week and a half. Um, we've tried to chronicle them on some of our social media. I, I fear that maybe we've even lost track of some of um, them. There's been so many uh, people bringing 100 masks, 500 masks, dropping them off at patrol stations. Hmm. We have masks as well. We have hand sanitizer uh, officers are sanitizing before and after contacts that they have with the public. They're now allowed to wear their masks if they feel comfortable in contact with the public. So you're going to see a lot of KCPD officers out there wearing their masks. Yeah. And speaking of that, I was in Costco in Midtown yesterday. I bet 80% of the shoppers in there were wearing masks, myself included. Yeah, we're starting to see that a lot more. That's for sure. Uh, I was out on a, a, a crime scene early morning yesterday, and I bet it was probably about 80 percent of the officers were also wearing masks. Interesting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to up to date special coverage coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm visiting with a couple of representatives from some of our largest area police departments. That's Overland Park Police Chief Frank Donchez and Sergeant Jake Bakina. He's the chief spokesman for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. If you want to join our conversation, eight one. 6-235-2888 or tweet us at KCUR up to date. You know, Sergeant Bakina, you mentioned uh, parks. You know, one of the big concerns you hear about is so many people have been congregating in parks that they've actually become dangerous. Mayor Lucas in Kansas City said that police would be stepping up patrols in parks. Sergeant, is, is that happening? And what are officers doing when they uh, approach a park? Yeah. So as I had mentioned, you know, we are having patrol officers, traffic officers as they're out and about on their normal patrols, having them pass through parks. Uh, If they do see a group that may be gathering, um, maybe like on a a tennis court or a basketball court, as you had mentioned, um, maybe just kind of pass by there again, acknowledge, wave um, like we normally would. You know, from time to time, we'll go through a park and get out and just kind of visit with the people that are there. And so continue that sort of thing. Now, if we're called there on a criminal matter, if there's an outside disturbance or a a fight or something like that that is breaking out, obviously we're going to respond exactly as we always would. We will attempt to, you know, bring that situation under control, ensure everybody's safety, and um, and then encourage people to move along uh, if that's the appropriate course of action. How about Overland Park, Chief Donches? Yeah, we've been encouraging our officers. You know, we our call volume is down about. 20 to 25 percent on any given day over the last week and a half or so and so we've been encouraging them to check check the parks but also to check businesses you know a lot of businesses are closed i've seen at least the numbers nationally that um burglaries are are on the rise and so we're having our officers do extra checks on businesses since since they're closed particularly obviously at night is your call volume down in kansas city missouri sergeant about six or seven percent is what we've seen in our high priority calls. We looked at priority one, priority two calls, which are the most life endangering calls, the most concerning calls to the safety of our residents. Those are down about six or seven percent. But violent crime, Sergeant, still continues maybe unabated here. Yes. Um, unfortunately, you know, you look at uh, we look at homicides and we look at non-fatal shootings as big indicators of violent crime. Homicides are still up for the year. Non-fatal shootings are still up for the year. Looking at March of this year versus March of last year, non-fatal shootings were almost exactly the same. I believe there was two cases different, uh, less this year than last year. Does that surprise you, given the fact that so many people appear to be hunkering down at home? 
It does, but I believe that um, you know uh, criminals will still find opportunities to take advantage of situations, and um, we know that if you're not apt to follow the rules when it comes to uh, violent crime or uh, engaging in criminal behavior, that you're probably also not apt to follow rules when it comes to social distancing or remaining in a stay-at-home order. We have a question here, Chief Donches, about the fact that everyone's wearing masks these days. How does that affect you know, routine police work that your officers do each day, does it make, uh, you know, coming across people who are wearing masks, is that a little bit unnerving for them? You know, I don't think so. I think that obviously in any other given time it would, but I think that we understand and our officers understand that we're going to run across people wearing masks and, you know, they're going to take the same precautions they take no matter what, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous profession and you take precautions when you stop a vehicle or you engage with a citizen contact. So I don't really know that the fact that people are wearing masks is, is going to, to really make that much of a difference to our officers. What is the protocol, Sergeant, for officers reporting any symptoms associated with COVID-19? What do you do if you come across someone who appears to be suffering from it? Yeah, so, you know, we're in touch with our uh, EMS, you know, KC Fire Department. We're in touch with them on a regular basis. If we have someone who is exhibiting symptoms or claiming to be, um, obviously we we can bring in the EMS workers, um, you know, right away on that. One of the things that we're doing from a proactive standpoint is when you call 911 or the non-emergency number, our call takers have now added in a series of screening questions if you should elect to answer just basically asking, are you symptomatic? Have you been diagnosed? Do you have anyone in the home that is? To give us a better idea as we're going up to these calls or going out to these calls, uh, you know, what we may be approaching. Chief, are you doing the same thing in Overland Park? We are, yes. Mm -hmm. If citizens notice big gatherings of people, Chief, where the social distancing guidelines aren't being followed, what should they do? Who should they call? You know, they can call our number, 895-6300, and, and that's our non-emergency number. They can call and report it. And like I said, we'll go out and we'll do that that education uh, and information piece for them. How about in Kansas City, Missouri, Sergeant? Yeah, we're uh, suggesting that all calls of that nature, be it a business or a, a gathering in a, in a park or something like that, go through our 311 Action Center. Um, those calls get uh, routed that way to, if it's business related, then our regulated industries or our business uh, entities can follow up with that. If it's related to gatherings of people, then they get funneled to the individual division stations, the community interaction officers, or the uh, the commanders that are on duty at that time uh, will then kind of um, determine the best course of action to go out there and encourage or, or educate. Chief, uh, fortunately, you don't have a level of violent crime in Overland Park that we sometimes see in Kansas City, Missouri, but to the extent that you do, are your numbers down or holding up the same? What are you seeing? Our, our numbers for crime are down about 20% as well, kind mm -hmm. of even with our call volume numbers. But uh, and, and that's just crime in general is down about 20%. But I couldn't agree more with the sergeant's comment. Generally, people that are engaged in violent crime aren't, you know, they, they have a total disregard for the, for the law. So they're not really worried about social distancing or any other kind of uh, uh, rules. Yeah. You were saying, Chief, that uh, nationwide there's been an increase in burglaries in recent weeks uh, in the wake of this pandemic. Are you seeing the same thing come home to roost in Overland Park? I've not really looked into those numbers. I just know that we've told our officers that they need to be mm -hmm. a little bit more aggressive since there's less calls and more free time to to focus on those types of things. In addition, more free time. We've actually 
we're not ignoring violations, not whatsoever, but we're, we're telling the officers that when it comes to self-initiated activity, you know, you don't need to be sitting there running radar and, and, you know, engaging the public if, if we don't have to, but obviously somebody runs a red light in front of you, we want to take action and enforce the law. Yeah. How about in Missouri on the Kansas city side, Sergeant, are you seeing any impact when it comes to burglaries? Yeah, we've looked at, um, we compared January, February, and March, and non-residential and residential burglaries are down. We're down across the month of March as compared to February and January. Uh, let's hmm. see, stolen vehicles, they were also down, and then theft from vehicle is also down. And those numbers are actually pretty significant if you look at them across the board. So there is some relief in the wake of this pandemic in both of your departments, Sergeant. There's uh, officers have time to do more proactive policing, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, we uh, we're still out there and our staffing is still uh, strong. And so we have officers that are that are out there and they're looking for opportunities to serve the community and finding creative ways to, um, you know, making contact, making, you know, real good, solid contact with residents out there and, um, you know, finding out what their needs are. We've seen some things. We've seen creative solutions. There was a mother that was stuck at home and some officers got together and uh, was able to get uh, a little bit of groceries, you know, for them. And mm. so things like that are popping up. And it's just really neat to see some of the creative solutions that our officers are coming up with to help serve their communities that they're out there in. Flo from Kansas City, Kansas, called to ask what this, what's the situation in the, in the jails regarding safe distancing, checking prisoners in and treatment. Uh, how are you handling that in Overland Park, Chief? Well, the, the Johnson, we don't have a jail here other than, you know, the Johnson County Sheriff's Office okay. jail. And so they have protocols in place that when the officers go there uh, to drop off prisoners, there's a there's a protocol where, you know, they're limiting the amount of engagement between our officers and their their officers, but still making that transfer in a in a safe manner. Has there been any release of prisoners from the Johnson County Jail that you're aware of, Chief? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. How about on the uh, Missouri side, Sergeant? What are you seeing in the uh, Jackson County Detention Center and even the city jail? What's been happening there? Yeah, we're kind of in the same boat as as Kansas in that we don't directly operate a jail here in Kansas City either. You know, we contract services through the Jackson County Jail for our uh, for any temporary holdings. And then we have our side patrol stations have temporary holding facilities. So we bring them into the side stations. And one of the things we're doing, again, additional screening there, uh, temperature taking as they're coming into our station, um, and then additional, um, you know, any additional follow-up and protocols according to that. As far as what Jackson County is doing, uh, releasing any prisoners, I am not, um, I, I don't know exactly what their protocol is. I don't want to speak to that because I'm not, I'm not for sure if they've released people or are planning to release people within there. We should try to find out because there's been lots of reports about overcrowding in that jail, which is in downtown Kansas City. So we'll try to check on that. How has this crisis impacted the morale of your department or has it had any impact, Chief? I think I think they're upbeat. You know, they're they know that they have a job to do and it's serving the public and they continue to serve in a professional manner that that we that we do year round. And, and they, you know, they're taking the precautions necessary to protect themselves and the community. Are they worried about contracting this being on the front lines as they are, Chief? I think I think every police officer and every every, you know, first responder 
for, and I I have to include the medical personnel as well, because the people in our hospitals and our paramedics, they're certainly on the front lines as well. So I think that uh, anybody that interacts with the public as part of their job is, is concerned about it. Have you had any officers in Kansas City, Missouri, Sergeant, say, I can't work right now, I'm too nervous about my own physical health? No, we haven't heard that. Our officers are still coming to work. They're still serving the public. You know, you get into this profession with a desire to serve and put others before yourself. And I think that's naturally just ingrained in our culture. And so the fact that there is an illness out there that can cause harm to us is something that, you know, we kind of put that aside every day. We take the precautions. But there's a lot of aspects of this job that can cause harm to us. And the best thing we can do is train for and take precautions. And this is really no different. Sergeant Bakina, could you give us an update on how the two department members who had contracted COVID-19, how are they doing? The original two are progressing through their, uh, you know, required quarantine procedures per uh, medical guidelines. We've had uh, some additional uh, positive tests at this point in time. We're at, uh, we're at six total department members. That's four sworn law enforcement and then two non-sworn civilian employees. And all of them are following the, the proper protocols as far as self-isolation at home, uh, maintaining contact with their medical providers, and uh, just progressing through the, the healing process of this. Any positive uh, members of your force, Chief? Uh, no, thankfully, no. Okay. Well, I want to thank both of you for answering our questions here today, and we sure appreciate the work that all of your uh, department members are doing right now. We just heard from Overland Park Police Chief Frank Donchez and Sergeant Jake Bakina, who's the chief spokesman for the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Thank you both for your time. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. We appreciate it, too. After a short break, we'll come back and we'll visit with the Washington Post, David Von Draley, who just uh, contracted his own case of COVID-19 and has survived to tell us about it. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. And welcome back. I'm Steve Kraske. The Washington Post, David Von Draley, is walking amongst us again weeks after coming down with COVID-19. David, who lives in the Kansas City area, had what he described as a mild to moderate case, absent of the severe headaches and congested lungs that so many others suffer from. He's even got a few lessons to share from his bout with the virus that has wreaked so much havoc on this world. David Von Draley joins me now from his home. David, glad to hear your voice again. Thanks, Steve. It's glad to be. Uh, it's great to be back among the living. How bad was it, David? Ah, uh, it was really a strange trip, um, and uh, pretty physically demanding. I, I, it was ten days of uh, being very uh, sick, uh, feverish, uh, body aches. Uh, weird dreams, uh, stomach problems, uh, just, uh, take your, take your normal seasonal flu and stretch it out about three times as long as you'd be used to it. And hmm. that gets you in the ballpark. Hmm. For the record, you were never tested for COVID-19, right? No, I tried to get tested. Uh, my wife and I worked, uh, very hard to find a test that I would qualify for in the Kansas City region. And uh, at that time, which would be about um, 
you know, around I think the 20th, 19th, and 20th of March when we were really looking, uh, it was almost impossible to get tested uh, in this region. I think through a lot of uh, yeoman efforts, both uh, public and private sector, there's more uh, testing now than there was then, but it's still. The idea that you just walk into a doctor's office or an emergency room and say, I think I have COVID and you could be tested, that just is not the reality in large parts of the United States. So how certain are you that it actually was COVID then? I was pretty sure at the time and so was the doctor who uh, gave me the tentative diagnosis. And then since I've written about it, a uh, number of people who did have confirmed cases have reached out to me, and their symptomology is so similar. Uh, while it seems like no two people have exactly the same case, uh, some of the qualities were so uh, consistent, particularly the long, grueling uh, day after day after day nature of it. Uh, that I'm, I'm pretty confident I had it. You wrote this in one of your columns, and I'm quoting, seven days into the waves of fever, I was drifting half in and half out of sleep. I was wearing a down jacket with the hood cinched around my neck. I was buried under the covers, teeth chattering. A week like that is a very long time. Nine days and counting is still longer. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. No, it, it really kicked my tail, I got to say. Yeah. Um, and uh toward the end there was uh, was pretty uh demoralizing although uh you know as i say i always uh, even on the worst day i could tell that my lungs were clear and uh i knew that was the you know that that's that's the real ball game that's the dividing line between what uh, I kind of euphemistically uh, describe as mild to moderate, uh, because that was a phrase that was flying around in common use uh, a few weeks ago. You know, the dividing line between that and a potentially fatal case is the is the pneumonia. It, your your voice still sounds a little weak to me. Am I hearing that correctly over the phone here? I, I think that's right. It, if you'd heard me a week ago, you'd, you'd think I was doing better. Huh. <laughs> yeah. How did your family weather this, and did any of them get sick? We, we don't really know. My great fear was that my uh, wife, who has some underlying uh, health issues, would be uh, hit hard because uh, by the time I realized I was probably dealing with COVID rather than just with the flu, uh, you know, I'd already been around her enough that she was surely exposed. She had some days where she felt uh, fatigued and had some headaches, so she may have had a mild case, uh, but uh, to my great relief, uh, at least so far, she's not gotten as sick as I was. We have two daughters at home. Uh, Again, one of them had a sore throat for a day or two. Uh, the other one had one day when she was in bed uh, uh, sick, so it's possible they had the you know short mild cases that uh, tend to uh, characterize you know teenagers with COVID. Um, so I, I mean the 
the best possible case is that we've all been exposed and we're all through it and uh, and haven't gotten anyone else sick. I, I hope that's the case. So what's your takeaway from having endured something this awful? Well, uh, that uh, it's real. Uh, it's not overblown uh, because if, uh, if I, a person in otherwise really good health got as sick as I did, then, you know, I completely understand why emergency rooms and ICUs are filling up with, uh, you know, people who are uh, less fortunate than I. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's not invented. It's not made up. It's not a media hoax. It's a real disease. It's different from uh, anything I've had before, and I've had all the colds and all the flus and all the normal seasonal uh, viruses. Uh, I know what those feel like. I, I know what COVID is like. Um, and, you know, the extraordinary steps, measures that we're being encouraged to take to try to slow this down so that the healthcare system can deal with the extreme cases. You know, these these are uh, important measures that we need to pay attention to. They're not uh, yeah. hysterical overreactions. David, just quickly, there's a lot of talk now that people like you who have antibodies that could be contributed to others who are suffering. Have you heard from anyone in the medical world about contributing, you know, your antibodies to somebody else? I'd, I'd love to, you know, hmm. and I've, I've kind of reached out a little bit, but again, we come up against the same testing problem that, uh, you know, we face with the diagnostics. Uh, in order to figure out who's got the antibodies, we've got to test for them. Uh, those tests exist in theory, but they're not mass-produced and they're not widely available. And right. uh, we're, uh, From what I can tell, we're not really close to having that available. All right. That's David Von Draley of the Washington Post. He lives in the Kansas City area. David, great to hear your voice again. Stay uh, on the right path here and get well. Thanks, Steve. One thing is undoubtedly true on almost any media outlet in the country right now. We're hearing a lot about the coronavirus. It is everywhere. But how well is the media actually doing at covering this crisis? And what is the media's responsibility at a time like this? One big issue that's already emerged is what is the media's responsibility when it comes to President Trump's daily news conferences, especially when the president has a habit of going off script and providing medical information that may have dangerous faults. Falsehoods. Our media critics are here to talk about these questions. They are Patricia Gatson, is the Lacey Haynes Professor of Journalism at the William Allen White School of Journalism at KU. She joins us via Skype. Patricia, nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Peggy Lowe is a veteran reporter who covers uh, two national efforts for KCUR. She's a hub reporter for Marketplace, uh, Public Media's national business show, and she's an investigative producer with APM Reports. Peggy, always good to have you, too. Good morning, Steve. As the two of you watch the media at work here, what kind of job are media outlets doing these days, Patricia? If you had to give the media a letter grade, what would you give it? Well, I would give the media a B, B plus, 
at this time. Uh, up until a couple years ago, I was a colleague of David Vondrely. So for me to hear his voice today is just great. Oh, me too. Uh, yeah. And this is my first time where I've been on the sidelines in almost 40 years of a big story. But I will say this, uh, it's a little bit different for me sitting here in Lawrence, Kansas. I know all, a lot of the media types in New York and Washington. And I think that they have been doing as good a job as they possibly could, given the circumstances we are under. Peggy, what would you say? I like the B grade. I think that's really accurate, Patricia. And I think that mostly it seems to me that media kind of stayed in their lanes. You know, network news was rather breathless and scary, uh, an intense half hour at the end of the day. Cable was round the clock and repetitive. Um, I thought the star was really good at doing sort of big picture pieces. Um, a lot of us early on were very, uh, here's your utilitarian news, news you can use. Um, you know, here's where the orders are about stay at home. Here's where you go for this. Here's what you should do. So um, I like Patricia's B grade. Um, has the media, Patricia, gone overboard? Is it too much information, too dark, too foreboding? Has there been enough positive news? Well, I mean, news is news. There's not always going to be positive, And we're in the middle of a pandemic, something that most of us have never been through. And so for my colleagues and, and for all the media types all over the world, you got to get the message out. You got to know what's happening out here. So again, I'm still reading the Post every day. I'm reading the New York Times. I'm reading the Lawrence Journal World. I'm reading the uh, Topeka Capital Journal and the Star. I'm listening to uh, cable TV. I'm listening to radio when I can. And I don't think it's too much. I think we have got to know what the heck is going on. And if we didn't, I think we'd be in even worse shape than we are now. Peggy, though you, you do hear people say, I can't turn on the radio. I can't watch TV these days because it's just too dark. Right. And I certainly think that people kind of need to do, use portion control, right? I mean, like, I can't watch CNN all day, but I can maybe check in on the nightly news. Um, I can check in on the live blog that KCUR does, for instance, because it's really up-to-date um, information coming from public health officials, coming from the government. I think people do need to do that moderate media attention span. Use that right now. How about does cutting away from the president's press conference, does it wind up editorializing whatever medium we're talking about here, Patricia Gaston, or what would you say? No, I don't think it does. I think that um, when the press conferences devolve into fifth media, verbal fisticuffs or there's misinformation, you know, frankly, I want to hear from the experts. I want to hear from people who know what the heck is going on medically. I want to know what they know about the supply chains and whether or not hospitals are getting what they need. I want to also know what is happening um, in our local communities. So I don't think that when they do pull away from those, that it is wrong. But Patricia, and I don't think it's realizing. The argument is, though, this is the president of the United States and this is a pandemic. It is the president of the United States and it is a pandemic. However, 
everyone has to be responsible when they are up on the podium. And if we see, and you know, again, media uh, is all about making decisions about coverage, whatnot. If we see that he is not giving us the information that we need, or frankly, if he's fighting with somebody in the room, or he's, you know, going over past discretions with other people that he's had fights with, frankly, I don't want to hear it. And I bet you most of the country does not want to hear it. Peggy Lowe, what would you say to this? Does the media, uh, should it continue to, to offer the president's daily news briefings during this pandemic or should it pull away? I think it should pull away. And I think there's another way to do this. And I think it's being done, for instance, by KUOW in Seattle, the public radio station there. You know, Seattle was hit early and it was a catastrophe. I've talked to some journalism friends there. So what KUOW decided to do um, was pull away from those live briefings. What they said was, we will still cover this, we will still report on this, but there are so many dangerous falsehoods that we don't feel like it's a responsible thing to broadcast this live and unadulterated. They said fact-checking on the fly like that is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So we will cover this and get back to you on what is the truth and what is not. Hmm. I can't help but notice uh, these days that Missouri Governor Mike Parson, Peggy, is conducting daily briefings, but the media isn't allowed to ask questions from what I've read. What do you make of that? I think Parson has done a, a very um, questionable job of getting information out uh, in a timely manner, um, in a transparent manner, I think that a lot of the folks surrounding him may not be giving him good advice. I had a scoop a few weeks ago where business leaders and uh, public health officials here in town were begging him to start listening to public health officials and to start uh, issuing those stay-at-home orders, just the sort of safety measures that most of the rest of the country have done. So I, I don't really understand what he's doing right now. Patricia, as you watch Kansas Governor Laura Kelly, um, what are you thinking about the way she's conducted herself and gotten information out in Kansas? Well, I think she has done a pretty good, good job. Um, also, while we've been in the middle of this pandemic, some of my state house reporting students have been covering some of the COVID information remotely, and that's been a whole nother a whole nother thing. I mean, it's been really it's good for them to be able to see a big story, but also one that is so very important to each and every one of our lives. And I think Governor Kelly has done a pretty good job um, of getting information out, whether one party agrees with it or not. She's been upfront. She uh, and her staff have been getting the word out. I've also seen her on a couple of the cable shows. And, uh, you know, again, I don't think we can go wrong with more information. The more information and the more credible it is, the better we as citizens will be. Having said all this, uh, this situation is really a fast moving one. And you got to wonder about uh, even chief executives like uh, Governor Parson or Governor Kelly, their ability to stay on top of a situation like this, Peggy. It can't be easy. I am sure they 
are very stressed out to say, you know, to be really diplomatic. I will also say that I feel for all the public relations and the public information officers who I've been dealing with now for several weeks, they have had just a fire hose hitting them every single day. But also to their credit, They've been pretty great about getting folks on the phone when we need them. For instance, I've done some stories on Children's Mercy. Um, they reacted really quickly and responsively. Yesterday, I talked to the Wyandotte County uh, Chief Medical Officer. Uh, the PIO there had him on the phone for me within two hours about a major outbreak at a rehab facility in KCK. So for the most part, I think even dealing with the fact that we can't be there in person at press conferences or in an office, these folks have been pretty good about getting back out to us. Patricia, as we began this conversation, you both, I think, gave the media a, a roughly a B grade for its performance so far. Where has the media fallen short most dramatically in your view, or have you noticed anything that's just a glaring omission? Well, I will say that uh, at the beginning, and again, I think it's because we were not able to get up close to people. We haven't been able to get, mm -hmm. you know, in touch with people and be right there. Uh, but I will say that I think that the people, the so-called people stories have been just fantastic. I've been reading all kinds of, of uh, tales, um, and especially now with this issue of African-Americans uh, disproportionately being affected and dying uh, because of the virus. I have seen some really, really meaty stories on that. And uh, not only are they just full of, of uh, experts, but they're talking to people. So that tells me that, you know, having to take one more step outside of our remoteness right now has really been important. That story seems to have just exploded in the last 48 hours. Yes, it has. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I'm glad that people are taking that seriously. I mean, Dr. Fauci talked about it yesterday. Again, there have been people in some of our advocacy committee uh, communities, uh, most notably Reverend William Barber, who has been talking about how maybe this uh, pandemic will uh, bring about some change in terms of our social justice issues. Hmm. Peggy, how about you? Has you seen any glaring omissions where the media may have fallen short here? I think um, we need to, again, get closer to the working poor. The um, New York Times had some great cell phone analysis last week showing that most of us um, get to stay home and work from home and we're perfectly safe. Uh, the working poor are out there. They're going on buses to get to their $12.99 an hour job. They are um, dealing with folks who are sick. They are working in the grocery stores or their bus drivers or something like that. And they are exposed every day all the time. I think we need more stories about that. I talked to a care worker yesterday who said, I make $12.25 an hour and I'm not going to risk my life and my daughter's life to you know, work in a nursing home that only pays me that. So I think that's a remarkable story we need to get on. I just have a little uh, amount of time left here, Patricia. Are local governments taking advantage of this moment to pass laws that aren't that popular because they're not being covered that closely these days because the media's focus is on the virus so much? You know, it seems like everything has kind of come to a standstill. Mm -hmm. Now, I may be wrong about that, but I think... Seemingly, everything is kind of slow to a crawl right now. And that could be, again, because 
governments are having to deal with issues that they maybe never dreamed that they would. So I think, you know, for example, uh, um, I think the Lawrence uh, City Council has been still having meetings. They've had meetings and they, and they you know, put them online. Mm-hmm. But I think things have kind of slowed to a crawl. And I think not only just locally, but I think statewide, of course, in Kansas, we're already at that period of the, the legislative session where they take a pause and look at some, and the governor looks at her bills right. and sees what she will do in May. Uh, but I, I just think everything is kind of slow to a crawl. And in some respects, rightly so. We'll have to leave our we'll have to leave our conversation there. I want to thank our media critics today, Patricia Gaston. She's the Lacey Haynes Professor of Journalism over at the William Allen White School of Journalism at KU. Again, she joined us via Skype. Patricia, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And Peggy Lowe's a veteran reporter uh, here at KCUR. Peggy, I always appreciate your time too. My pleasure, Steve, and I miss all your people in there working today <laughs> to get your show on the air. Thanks, Peggy. Working out of Food Truck Central near the West Bottoms in Kansas City, Kansas, five volunteers from Operation Barbecue Relief have been preparing 950 meals a day for first responders, area veterans, and the homeless. These volunteers are normally mobilized to prepare hot meals in the aftermath of tornadoes and hurricanes, where they can serve up to 60,000 meals a day. While this might be a small operation by their standards, though, it serves a larger purpose during the COVID-19 pandemic. KCUR freelance reporter and photographer Julie Denishay has this audio postcard for us. First step is our rub into the oven, 275 degrees for about uh, two and a half to three hours. My name is Shannon Kimball and I'm the area coordinator for Operation Barbecue Relief. So I, I run the Kansas City region, basically. If there's a disaster that's needed within eight or 10 counties around Kansas City, I'm usually the first one on the ground. We're pretty deep in volunteers, but with this, you know, this COVID scare, a lot of them do not want to deploy. So we, you know, we're, we're tight on people here. You know, we're tired, but we're gonna, we're gonna keep forging forward. So this team I have in here now, we're about eight or nine days in. So we're gonna keep going until it's over. Yeah, it looks like we're loading up. So they're taking it to the sheriff's departments and local police departments. And then after he leaves, the garage door comes down, we sanitize everything. And when it's all clean and ready to go and safe, we move it back into the kitchen area. So we have two areas of separation. So we're really doing a super good protocol here for uh, health safety. When we're right there cooking them a meal, you know, to me it's like, you know, grandma feeding you. I saw that firsthand when my old hometown of Harveyville got hit. I went there to check on my family. It was my first deployment with OBR. I stayed behind, helped, and my cousins were walking up that lost their houses. And the, the tears that I could not hold back is what brought me into this. Yeah, we're going to smoke some pork loin today. I'm Brett Atkinson. I own Wilma's Good Food food truck. I'm currently out of work, but I'm in work. Just volunteering here down at the uh, Food Truck Central. Just cranking out meals for the the homeless, disenfranchised, first responders, anybody who needs it, really. We're used to working in a you know with a debris field or during a hurricane where there's no electricity and the infrastructure shut down. It's more like a a huge camping trip. Whereas this time, our enemy is invisible. 
can't see it, you can't smell it, can't taste it, you don't know who's got it. It's not like it's obvious that that person is ill. So you just have to assume that everyone is contaminated in this situation that we're in. Just, we don't, we don't take chances. So then we got our meat on and that just, it goes by itself. And now we're gonna start working on sides to go with the, the protein. Try to make it delicious and healthy. I think we all do it for the same purpose, to take care of those that are less fortunate than we are. I mean, we're, we're all standing upright, healthy, young and beautiful, you know, and uh, I'm unemployed. I could be sitting home on my butt doing nothing, or I could be contributing and just giving back to society in what little way I can. I don't have a whole lot of skills, but I can cook, and so put it to use. That's Julie Denishev reporting on Operation Barbecue Relief. I'm Steve Kraske. You're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We'll see you tomorrow.